Uh, Let me pray, and we will get going for this morning. Jesus, on this new day that we are here gathered together, we want you to know that we love you, that uh, the greatest life we believe that we could ever live is one following you, um, and we want to be shaped more into your likeness. So, Jesus, as we open uh, your word this morning, would you do some of that work on us and in us, shaping us more into your likeness, helping us to be more in love with you when we leave here than when we came, and would you continue that work uh, in the days ahead? We pray this in your name. Amen. So, when I was uh, speaking with Sam about the opportunity to come and share with you, I said, where do you want me to, to speak from? And he said, it's really up to you. Um, and so I thought it could be fun for us to jump over into Matthew's gospel. I know you've been in Mark's gospel. Uh, I think Jake just taught out of chapter 4, which is really a, a section of parables in Mark's gospel. So I thought it could be interesting for us to jump over into Matthew. Church of the City has been spending some time in Matthew's gospel over the last few months. And head to a section in Matthew's gospel, namely chapter 13, where a lot of those same parables pop up. So that's what we're going to do. Um, Let me give you a a quick minute or two of context for Matthew's gospel, some of the ways that it differs from Mark and is unique, okay? Uh, Matthew's gospel, not surprisingly, is attributed to Matthew, also known as Levi, one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And uh, Matthew was a Jewish Christian. And not surprisingly, then, it is for us to hear that he wrote primarily to an audience of Jewish Christians in order to help them navigate a little bit of a crisis. Now, what's the crisis, you might be asking? Ulrich Luz defines it really well. That's a million-dollar name, isn't it? Ulrich Luz. Let's read what he says. The Gospel of Matthew is a response to the no of Israel's majority to Jesus. It's the attempt to come to terms with this no by defining the community's position and to contribute to forming and preserving its identity in a situation of crisis and transition. Now, I think you might agree with me that that's a similar situation to what we find ourselves in in this present moment, right? The need to contribute uh, to to forming and preserving our identity in a situation of crisis and transition. I think that sort of describes the last year. And so I think uh, these verses that we might read uh, this morning may very well have some relevance for us, okay? Some specific context for where we're going to go in Matthew's gospel, chapter 13. Matthew arranges his gospel in a particular way, really around five blocks of Jesus' teaching, sermons really. In Matthew 13 is the third of these major sermons of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, the middle one, okay? And Matthew 13 really kind of has two halves to it. The one is the public half, out delivered with the crowds, and the other is the private half, delivered to his disciples. We see the transition. You don't need to go here. I'll just read it for us. Matthew 13, verse 36. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so, in these parables, in the second half, we kind of get this sense of a little bit more intimacy, a little bit more of a quiet setting. And I think that'll inform our understanding as we go this morning. Many parables are shared across different Gospels, but the two that we're going to look at this morning are unique to Matthew. 
They're unique to Matthew. The parable of the sower that you looked at last week comes earlier in Matthew 13, but these two are unique to his gospel. And actually, here's where I just kind of burst the bubble and say they're not true parables. Um, A true parable has uh, a beginning and end, has a little bit of a plot to it, whereas these are just kind of what a literary buff might call, you know, similes or similitudes. Um, uh, Matthew begins them, the kingdom of heaven is like, and they're just short little sayings almost. But they're unique to Matthew's gospel. And so we ask the question, you know, why did Matthew want to include these in his gospel? And I think we'll explore some answers for that as we go. As Jake said last week, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a physical story with a spiritual meaning. But they're meant to evoke a response. And that's still true of these short little mini parables we're going to look at here. So with that, I know that was a long extended introduction, Dennis. So with that, let's jump into Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. Hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. So at the outset here, I think it's helpful for us to look at sort of a key term or phrase that Matthew uh, brings into this little passage a couple of times, and it's the kingdom of heaven. Now, in one way, we can say it's, it's fairly simple. This is just another way of uh, um, saying that term that crops up often in, in Mark's gospel, the kingdom of God. They're the same thing. They're referring to the same thing. Matthew's use primarily of kingdom of heaven likely reflects his respect or deference for Jew, the Jewish custom of not saying the name of God. So you just switch it to kingdom of heaven as a way of sort of stepping around that. But scholars agree that the concept or the theme of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a central, if not the central theme for the teaching of Jesus. And so it's important that we understand it, I would argue, and understand what Jesus was meaning when he was talking about it. And so as we jump in, I want to just highlight two quick little aspects of uh, the kingdom of God as Jesus taught about it so often in his ministry, okay? Two key aspects that we'll explore as we jump into our text. So the first one is this. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is here, and yet we still wait for it. It's here, and yet we still wait for it. Theologians, the fancy term for this is inaugurated eschatology, or the now and the not yet. Some passages that illustrate this well. Mark 1, 15. You'll have looked at this a number of weeks ago. Jesus says this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very present, tangible, here and now. But then later on in in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34, this is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he'll separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, 
but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We get a real sense that this is something that we are still waiting and longing for. So, our first aspect to keep in mind about the kingdom of heaven is that it's here and yet we still wait for it. And the second is this, that the kingdom is really about the king. The kingdom is really about the king. See, in a modern state like ours, uh, Canada, we can, I think, start to kind of lose sight of what kingdoms are like. I I don't know about you. I mean, we still have some relation to the monarchy, um, but I don't think of sort of my day-to-day existence in terms of the queen. Maybe you do, um, but, but not me. Um, but one passage that sort of gets at this idea in the scriptures that the kingdom is really about the king is back in Isaiah. Isaiah 9 verses 6 to 7. And again, I'll just read these for us. It says this, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, a Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The kingdom is really about the king. I don't know if you realize, but this Isaiah did not write, the government shall be conservative leaning with a strong healthcare system and balanced taxation. No, it's the government will be upon his shoulder. The kingdom is all about the king and the king is Jesus. Amen? The king is Jesus. And so with those two little aspects of Jesus' teaching on this theme, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, it's both now and it's not yet. And the kingdom is really all about the king. Let's look at our two little mini parables. Let's begin with the first, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, believe it or not, in the ancient Near East, this was actually a bit of a common practice. Someone hiding their treasure or their wealth in a cave or in a field somewhere. But, not surprisingly, as we all know from, you know, good old pirate stories, sometimes the treasure would be lost there. Either the person who hid it would pass away, or perhaps they just couldn't find it uh, later on. Whatever reason, it kind of gets lost to time there. And so, this becomes a, a, a bit of a common element in Jesus' time for sort of folklore tales. Um, exciting the imagination, particularly of those who had very little in the way of material means, right? The idea of stumbling upon a treasure was naturally quite exciting. But you know what? I don't know if you realize this, but this still excites the imagination and prompts people to do pretty wild things today. I don't know if any of you heard in the last few years about the treasure of Forest Fen. Anybody? Put up your hand if you... Oh, great. I love telling stories that people haven't heard. Um, it's a real hobby of mine. Uh, Forrest Fenn was uh, a bit of an eccentric billionaire. He uh, 
passed away, I think just in the last six months or so. But in 2010, Forrest went somewhere into the Rocky Mountains and buried a little box of treasure. He was sort of a, a collector um, uh, of, and sort of antique dealer of, you know, different rare things, coins, different sorts of things. And so he had hid a little chest of treasure somewhere in the Rocky Mountains and then published a poem with clues as to where you could find it. And he did, again, he did this in 2010, and thousands upon thousands of people hunted for this treasure all over the Rocky Mountains. And if you've looked at a map of the U.S. recently and Canada, you know that that's a pretty wide stretch swath of land. Um, at least five people lost their lives in the course of trying to find Fenn's treasure. It was actually just found last year, June or July of 2020, by a guy living over in Massachusetts, I think, who was one of these people. They, they sort of formed communities online, and they would exchange thoughts about their different clues, but he finally found the treasure. And so this is an idea that still gets people excited today, okay? Today. And so going back to our parable, Jesus' disciples would likely have been imagining, as Jesus told this small little story here, imagining a peasant worker working in a landowner's field and finding this treasure, stumbling upon it, and then going and scraping together the money to purchase this field. And as Jake talked about last week, it's easy for us to start to wander down little rabbit trails uh, about sort of specific aspects of these stories that Jesus told, isn't it? And we can start to say, let's talk about the ethics of what this man did here for a moment. That's not the point of Jesus' story here, okay? It's not the point. Let's jump to our second story, and then we'll do some comparing and contrasting of the two, okay? Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So again, some some cultural context for this. Merchants uh, were... Presumably people of higher means than, this, than the man in the, the first small little story there. Divers in that time would fish, dive down for pearls in the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. And no one's surprised to hear that they were quite valuable. Sometimes uh, netting um, in the tens and millions of our modern currency today. Okay, A really fine pearl. And this merchant finds a pearl worth going all in on. And so presumably his investment as a merchant, again, a person of greater means, was much greater. His investment was much greater than the man in the the first story, right? Who probably wouldn't have had much wealth to pull together to purchase that field. And so now let's, let's compare these two short little stories. Some similarities, first of all. For both men, the poor man and the rich man, the, the land worker and the merchant, the kingdom was worth more than all they had. Having God's kingdom, friends, is always worth it. It's always worth it. Being in the kingdom, being a citizen of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is always worth it. Secondly, for both men, their discoveries prompted immediate action. Both discoveries prompted immediate action. And I would argue, friends, that being a disciple of Jesus, being a citizen of his kingdom, is not a passive life. I think Jesus made this pretty clear in some of his final words to his disciples, recorded in Matthew's gospel. He says, go, 
Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. It's a life of action. Life on the move. But finally, another similarity. Their action, for both men, their action is motivated by joy. Now, hold on, you say. Hold on. It's mentioned, the joy of the first man is explicitly mentioned, but it doesn't actually say that for the merchant. To which I would say to you, stop being so cynical, okay? I'm just kidding. Um, But think about it for a moment. If your whole life is dedicated to finding pearls of great value, and you find the pearl, the one that motivates you to sell everything just to get it, what do you think you'd be feeling, if not joy? I read this interesting article Uh, published by an an archivist, someone who works in archives, looking at old manuscripts. His name is Jeff Huth, and he talks about the joy of discovery. And I think maybe we can agree, I hope there's no archivist in the room, that if if ever there was an occupation where your your joy might dull over time, it might be as an archivist, Um, you know, blowing the dust off of however many documents you do every day. Uh, But here's what Jeff Huth writes, okay? It says, we find joy in finding, as humans, the discovery of a new and interesting thing snaps us out of our most natural state of sleepwalking through the necessary routines of life. Listen to this. When we find that thing, something we may have been searching for, but also possibly something we had no idea existed, we become alive. Our minds awake Our bodies feel the excitement of these discoveries via the beat of our hearts, a sudden intake of breath, (sighs) horripilation along our arms. Now, friends, I'll be honest with you. I did not know horripilation was a word prior to reading Jeff's Jeff's, uh, interesting article. I I looked it up, and it's simply the hair standing on and in your arms. So Jeff clearly validated the fact that he is an archivist with his use of the word horripilation. But I think you can agree that Jeff is speaking our language as followers of Jesus, is he not? When we find that thing, something we may have been searching for, but also possibly something we had no idea existed, we become alive. That's these two parables, isn't it? Let's consider some differences between the two. First, as we already sort of mentioned, the the one man is likely of of relatively well-means, the other is not. But another difference, and Jeff alludes to this in his quote, the merchant was searching. He was on the hunt for fine pearls. But this poor man working the land wasn't in search of treasure, presumably. At least Jesus doesn't indicate that he was. He stumbled upon it. And friends, the kingdom of God can awe the spiritual seeker and the skeptic alike. And can compel them actually to sacrifice everything to receive it. I need to be reminded of that sometimes. I don't know about you. That the kingdom of heaven, when somebody stumbles into it, whether they're seeking or whether they're rather skeptical, it can compel them to sacrifice anything and everything to be a part of it, to receive it. So let's think through some of the ways that Jesus' words apply to us today. First, the kingdom is upon us. 
God is right now doing a work of saving and restoring the world around us. In the words of the parables, treasure is being discovered every day. And so if you're here this morning, maybe you're watching online, and you have not responded to Jesus, the decision is upon you. There's a pearl of infinite value before you. Will you grab hold of it? Or will you tuck it away, thinking, you know, someday I'll return back to this? No, the kingdom is upon you today. It's not some future decision. And if you wonder if it's worth it, it's worth it. It's always worth it. On a more somber note, one of the things we need to recognize from Jesus' words is that for some, the kingdom of God will cost everything. Will cost everything. This was true for the disciples before even many of them would lose their lives. Over in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, there's this moment where Jesus is talking about how hard it is to receive the kingdom. And Peter begins, as you know, Peter does, to sort of speak with his heart before processing his words too much. And it says, Mark 10, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. For some, the kingdom will cost everything. And this is still true for many around the world today. It's easy for us to forget this. But this is still true for many around the world today. But even, friends, for us here in Guelph, Ontario, if, it's, if it will never cost us our lives, we still must be willing to sacrifice anything that stands in the way of our allegiance to Jesus. Remember those two points about the kingdom of heaven that we talked about at the start. I'll say them again for us. We said the kingdom of heaven is both here and yet we wait for it. It's both here and yet we wait for it. And secondly, the kingdom is really about the king. So how do those apply to our parables this morning? Well, if you are a follower of Jesus, then in a very real sense, you have found the treasure. You're a citizen of the kingdom. And amen for that. And yet... In an equally true sense, we still wait for the kingdom to come in its fullness. In a sense, we are still treasure hunters on the lookout for that glorious day when Christ returns, keeping our eyes open. And remember that second point, the kingdom is really all about the king. And so I put the question to all of us. This morning, do you feel joy at the thought of his coming? Does the thought that at any moment, even sitting here in this room, we might hear something. We might hear something coming from outside and think, is that trumpets? And we all sort of stumble out in a socially distanced way out the doors. And the clouds are alight with fire. And today's the day. Like, does that... Does that make your heart beat any faster? Does that help you feel horripilation on your arms at all? I hope that it does. I'll be honest with you. I have been, in the last number of months, really trying to cultivate this kind of joy in my heart. See, as a, as a pastor, as the son of a pastor, <laughs> uh, it's easy to 
find yourself learning lots about God, knowing a lot about God, but sometimes not really knowing God very well. And so I, in the last number of months, have been really trying to stir up this kind of joy in my heart. And put up your hand if sometime over the last uh, weekend, you went for sort of what you would consider the first walk of spring. Anybody? Well, then you, you need to. Like this whole side, get outside. Get some, I mean, it's cloudy today, so you may have missed your chance. Who knows when you're going to get more vitamin D, friends? Um, but I went, I take Fridays off and I watch uh, my two sons on Friday. Our oldest is in school, so for part of the day, it's just me and my youngest, Cooper. And we went, we have some great trails uh, at the end of our street. We live down uh, close to the river. And so we went for what I would consider sort of the first walk of spring. And as I was standing there with my son, Cooper, you know, he's uh, turning three this week, actually. And so, you know, he's in that phase where just hitting the water with a stick is just his favorite thing to do, you know. And so as I stood and watched him do that, I felt a profound joy, like down to my core, hearing the gooses, the the geese, sorry, he says gooses, and now I find myself saying gooses all the time. (laughs) Uh, Hearing the geese uh, down there at the river, again, hearing him splashing in the water, like I felt joy to my core. And in that moment, as I was standing there, I felt my heavenly father say to me, I feel that kind of joy at being with you. And I just was blown away. And I thought, I... I need to cultivate more of this kind of joy in my heart. I want to feel that same joy every time I get to be with my Heavenly Father as He feels to get to be with me. Because remember, Jesus told this parable not to the crowds, where presumably there would have been many still seeking, still trying to decide what they thought about Jesus. He told it in a room with His disciples. Why? Yes, I think it's because they would be very soon the carriers of this message. And he wanted to fill them with excitement at that prospect. But also, I think, friends, Jesus told it to this small group because he knew, he knows, that sometimes our joy can grow a little bit cold. This is the comment, the the point made to the church in Ephesus in Revelation Chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, it says this, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. What is that if not, you know, a relationship cooling, losing a bit of that spark of joy that you had at the start? And friends, if that joy at being with the king being in the presence of Jesus is alive in our hearts, then we will be willing to sacrifice anything or everything. Because why wouldn't we? We have the greatest treasure the world has ever known. Let's pray. Jesus, Forgive us for the days where we choose to learn more about you, to, yeah, fill our heads with more knowledge, something that is so important and valuable. But forgive us for the times where we do that at the expense of being with you, of being present with you, of feeling joy 
at your presence with us. I pray for anyone here today or watching who has yet to discover the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, discover the joy of the king of Jesus, that they would make that decision today. Recognizing perhaps for the first time that nothing will come close to a life spent following you. And I pray too for those of us here who maybe have been following you for decades and at times find joy at being with you, growing a little bit cold. As we head towards Easter, would you kindle that joy afresh in our hearts? Would it be so alive and well, our joy at what we have found that Nothing else can claim our allegiance, because how could it? We've found the greatest treasure there is. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.